I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 will be in verses 11 through 14 this morning as we look at the idea of being gospel-centered. We're centering our lives as individuals and our life as a church on the good news of Jesus Christ. As we do this, we're going to see this central uh, theme as we continue to walk through this, that we are a local church committed to Christ-centered worship, life-on-life discipleship for a global mission. And we've kind of said we're seeking to kind of understand these two things we do at the center, worship and discipleship, and then the way that Scripture frames this as we walk through it. And today we're right here at kind of three until six o'clock, the idea of gospel-centered. As we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to consider this main idea that the gospel is the power of God for all of life. The gospel is the power of God for all of life. So if you will follow along in your Bibles, I'll read Titus 2, 11 through 14. God says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. As we begin this morning, I want to pause and ask you a question. How do you think about the gospel? In other words, what role does the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a human being and died in the place of sinners, what role, what does that play in your life today? We often think of the gospel like this. It's something we proclaim to sinners who need the Lord. They accept it, receive it, and then they kind of move on from it. So it's almost like this. I had this experience with Christ, I placed my faith in Christ, and then I take that message and I, and I put it in a closet and I, and, and I, I kind of keep it safe there. And then occasionally when I encounter someone else who needs it, I may, if I have the courage, go open that closet, pull it out, show it to them, and then, and then I'll put it back. And what I would like to demonstrate for us this morning is that, that God's design for that message in our lives is far different from how we often treat the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. In other words, God expects us, and his word indicates that our relationship with this message ought to be a day-by-day, breath-by-breath, moment-by-moment relationship with the good news that apart from Jesus, we have no hope. But in Christ, we have victory, we have new life, we have new hope. And if we lose our connection from this message, if we put it in a closet, we lose our very connection to the power of God in our lives. Now, I brought with me this morning a tool. Now, who knows what this is? It's a drill. Now, what can you do with a drill? You can drill a hole. You could, if you're a dentist, drill a hole in someone's tooth. If you're like me, you should never get near someone's tooth with with one of these. You can... Stick, I've got a Phillips bit in here this morning. You could stick it in the head of a screw and you could turn that screw. But let me ask you something. This feels actually harder than a screwdriver. It's very inconvenient. And, and when I pull this trigger right here, it does nothing. Why? There's no battery. Luckily for us this morning, I happen to bring a battery as well. I plug the battery in, I press the same button, and what happens? 
suddenly there is power. You see, this drill, apart from a connection to its power source, is basically worthless. But with power, with a close connection to the source of its strength, it actually becomes a powerful tool. And think about the way Paul describes the gospel in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is what? The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But friends, that's not true just for the moment when you lock it in the closet. It's true for us today. And if we walk and we leave that power locked away, we actually miss out not just on a blessing, but on the very means that God has designed for us to experience his grace day by day in our lives. The gospel is the power of God for all of life. We're going to see that in our text here this morning. As we do this, we're going to see a couple of main ideas. The way that Paul structures this passage is he kind of looks back at what the gospel has done, and then he says, what is the gospel doing today in our lives? And we're going to see those two things first, what the gospel has done. Now, we think of this kind of experientially as what it's done in our lives, but Paul looks at it a little bit differently, and he approaches it kind of from a historical perspective, and he says that the gospel appeared in real time as a real person. Verse 11 introduces us to the theme of this entire paragraph, the grace of God has appeared. This is the main theme that Paul's getting at here. As we work our way through Scripture, we see the gospel described from different perspectives. Sometimes it's described as running a race. Sometimes it's described as like getting in a ring and, and, and being in a boxing match. In Ephesians 5, it's described as a, a committed marriage, a husband loving his wife and giving his life for her. We see it described as Christ fighting in our place. We see it as described as Christ, our substitute. There are all these pictures, but when Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, he's not talking about a mere idea. He's talking about a point in time in history. He's talking about a real person, and that person is Jesus Christ. You see, the way the grace of God comes to us isn't merely through words. It is through a person. And it is through a relationship with this person, with Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, and that grace has appeared in the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And we encounter a saving relationship with God's grace when we enter a personal relationship with Jesus. But I think there's another helpful idea for us here. I mean, God's Word tells us that God knows all things. God's Word tells us that God cares about people. It's one thing to know that out here. It's another thing to experience that personally, isn't it? As we go through life, sometimes life is, I don't know, bite-sized. It's, it's, it's in chunks we can consume, but sometimes it comes at us fast and it brings pain and, and heartache and change and trial in a way that we cannot process it, let alone emotionally, personally, and spiritually deal with it. And at those times, it's tempting to wonder, does God care? In fact, I've heard people say things like, no one, no one understands what I'm going through. No one has felt what I'm feeling. No one has stood in my shoes. 
But God's word tells us that Jesus went through much worse than we'll ever go through. This is why 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. And I think these words, the grace of God appeared, shows us that Jesus Christ, eternal, infinite God, became a human being to experience life as we've experienced. So brothers and sisters, he can understand, he can empathize, he has felt what you have felt, he has feared what you have feared. God does know, God cares, and God himself has experienced pain, heartache, and trial. God entered history in real time as a real person. God knows, God cares. Now I'm going to step out a little bit here, and I've got to say, like, this could be, this could be a little bit tricky, so, so bear with me. We in our nation, if you haven't figured it out, it's pretty volatile. You say something, you know, things bubble up pretty quickly. You get opinions real fast. So we're going to go with a real easy one this morning, race relations. And we're going to solve that. Not really, but, 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 but I want to think about this for a moment. Imagine with me that there's a shooting. And based on your life and your experience, you have a perspective on what's happened. We look at the same situation and people come at it from very different angles, don't we? It could be uh, a shooting of a young person or it could be a shooting of a, an officer of the law. And we all bring perspectives to this. Now what we're not going to do is, is, is solve this, but, but, but what if we started from, from this perspective? That God knows, God cares, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on his own, and, and we just went there first. And we just decided, I don't know, but I'm going to care. And I'm going to hurt with those who hurt, I'm going to weep with those who weep, whomever they are. And, and we just went there. We can start with a reference point that Jesus knows and Jesus cares because he himself entered and experienced hurt, pain, loss, and death. That ought to be the starting point for our conversations. He entered in real time as a real person, and when he came, he brought salvation for all peoples. When Jesus appeared, he changed the focus of God's work in history. You see, before this, God started out and he began working with an individual named Abraham. And then he began working with Abraham's family, his, his children, Jacob, Isaac, and, and, then, and then 12 sons. And then those, those people became a nation. And for most of history, God worked with this nation. But when Jesus came, he changed the focus of God's work in the world. And Jesus came, his grace appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples. This isn't a message of universalism, like no matter what your relationship with the Lord is, you'll be saved. No, rather, it's, it's a message about the breadth of the gospel. It's not a message for a few. It's not a message for Jews. It's not a message for, for one nationality. It's a message for all people, for rich, for poor, for people who, who speak English and people who don't speak English, for people who know the history of Israel and people who don't know the history of Israel. Jesus came. He brought salvation for all people. Now, if you enter college, it's not like this. If you're applying for college scholarships, there's, there's a selection process, and based upon your grades, your athletic ability, sometimes your, your gender or your ethnic background, there are things that are available to you that aren't available to other people. What Paul is saying is that's not how this news works. It's not good news for a few. 
It's not good news for you if you can play Division I football. I mean, it is, but it's good news for everyone else, too. This is good news for all people. It's available to anyone because Jesus came and died to redeem a people for God. Verse 14 reveals to us a twofold purpose for which Jesus died. First, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and secondly, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for, for good works. Christ died to save us from something, and he died to save us for something. 1 John 3 verse 4 says that all sin is lawlessness. You see, Jesus' death sets us free from every transgression of the law. Every time we cross the line of God's expectation, the line of what God has clearly said, or the line of God's character. Redemption in Christ saves us from the penalty we deserve as lawbreakers. During the hurricane a uh, couple months ago, well, it's probably not even a couple months, six weeks ago, our, our family visited my brother who lives in Atlanta. As we were leaving town, I wasn't even in big a, a big hurry or trying to do anything crazy. But we were coming up on this traffic light, and I thought, oh, I can, I can make it through this light. And as I was getting close, right when I was getting up to it, it turned yellow. I thought, oh, I got this. <laughs> and uh, so I just, I just kept going. It turned red right when I was in the middle of that intersection, and right over there sitting a, an officer. And so I turned left, and he's got his, I'm like, I know he got me, you know, and, he come, and I, I couldn't even protest. I was like, I thought I could make it, and I couldn't. I was just, just being dumb, you know, kind of betting on the fact that I could make it through, and I, I couldn't make it through. And he was, he was actually pretty nice, but he still wrote me a ticket, and, uh, and he, he handed me this ticket, and he you know, basically said, you got to look out for all the crazy drivers out there. At least he wasn't implying that I was one of them. But, but he handed me this ticket, and when I went online for this ticket, it was something like 260 bucks, you know, it was like, are you serious? You know, I, I, just, I just spent that money like that. And, and, and what happens is if, if someone shows up, and it, it's like someone up showing up at traffic court and paying your fine. And, and Jesus redeems us from our lawlessness. And you see, Romans 6 tells us that, that the penalty for our transgression is death. We show up at court, and it's, it's not a $250, $60 ticket. It, 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 it's, it's, it's your life is required. And then someone steps in at the last minute and says, I'll pay it. I'll pay his fine. I'll, I'll offer in place of his life, I'll offer my life. Jesus offers himself in our place. We stand there and, and we're not like, I didn't do it. It's like, I did it. We're declared guilty under the law of God. God can't let us go. Someone must pay that penalty. And Jesus Christ steps in and says, I got it. I'll pay his penalty. No matter who you are, no matter what your background is, you have an inner sense that some things are right and others are wrong. You have this sense ultimately because there is an ultimate being who has created all of us with this reflected image of God. We know that there's this character. We know that there is right and that there is wrong in the universe. In other words, God has to create a universal moral code. And we know it's wrong for one, one person to take something from another that's not theirs. In other words, if you're on your way at the door and I beat you up and I take your phone, you know that's not right. You know if someone assaults someone and takes their life, you know that's not right. You know if someone enters your home and takes your television, you know that's not right. That's not because you're smart, it's because God designed you that way. 
It's because God has this character and he's written it on our hearts, in our DNA. We are created in the image and likeness of God. That's what differentiates us from, from other beings. And it's the cross that reveals the heart of God where God poured out his love for sinners. We sang about it earlier. His, his love washes us from our sin. And so the cross declares the infinite, majestic, beautiful love of God, but it also declares to us the cost of our sin, that it costs someone a life. It declares to us the justice, the holiness of God, as God must make that sin right. God insists that we keep every law he insists that we do something impossible. And then he himself provides payment for that impossible payment. God will redeem us from all law-breaking, but only if we place our faith in Jesus. If you're here and you are on the outside, the wrong side of this infinite, eternal, holy law, would you declare your faith in Christ to pay your fine, to bear your penalty in your place? Would you trust him? You see, the gospel is the power of God for all of life. It has acted, it appeared as a real person in real time, but the gospel also is working in our lives today. What the gospel is doing for us today. First, it is teaching us. The gospel is teaching us, verse 12. Before we trust Jesus, uh, Galatians tells us that the law of God is our schoolmaster. In other words, it, it sort of wraps us on the knuckles when we do something bad. It's like, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. It, it, points us, the, it, it points us to the idea that we need a Savior. But after we know Jesus, God's grace is a much gentler master. Now we're God's children. And this word training, that, that, that it trains us to live this kind of life, it's the same word that we see in Ephesians chapter 6, where fathers are to train or discipline their, their children. God's grace disciplines and teaches his children. And this teaching goes two ways. On the one hand, it teaches us negatively that there are a bunch of things we ought not to do. And then positively, it teaches us that there are a bunch of things that are good to do. And God's grace teaches us both of these things. First, God's grace teaches us that we ought to leave the world behind. He says, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Well, what is ungodliness? I mean, there are a lot of ways we could describe it, but let's describe it this way. Ungodliness is practical atheism. In other words, even if you don't say you're an atheist, it's living as if God isn't present as if God doesn't know, as if God doesn't care, as if God doesn't rule. It's living as if God doesn't exist. And more specifically, that it plays itself out in a way that looks like worldly passions. In other words, the root of this is that we live, live as if God doesn't exist and we live out our own desires independent of God. Well, how do you know if you practice actively the presence of God in your life? Well, what Paul's getting at here is that we should look at what we love. I mean, on the one hand, he says there are godly, godlessness and worldliness. Now, we know scripturally that worldliness can be an attraction to, to an entire value system, a way of living and thinking that are set against God and his character and his revealed will and his word. 
We must actively guard ourselves against this. And look, we get deceived and we fall into that, but God's word also says that it can be a lot more deceitful than that, a lot more attractive than that. It can be subtler, harder to spot. Do you remember the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, where the sower goes out to sow and he's throwing seed out and some lands beside the path on hard ground and birds come and eat that up. Some lands on rocky ground and it, it, it just can't get, dig, dig its roots down deep. But then there's, uh, there, there's another kind. There, there are, there's the, the stuff that lands among the thorns. You know what happens to that? It grows up and then what happens? The thorn, thorns choke the life out of that good grain. Well, what does Jesus say those thorns are. He says they are the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. He says the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. In other words, if our life is so filled with this world, it will choke the joy out of our relationship with Christ. It will do it. If it's objectively evil, okay, we get that. But Jesus here teaches that it might be kind of objectively neutral, but our minds are so consumed with it that the cares of this life, financial concerns, other concerns, they choke the, the, the life out of the Word of God in our lives. Remember that Jesus teaches that if we're so focused on the cares of this life, it chokes the joy and power out of our relationship with Christ. Are you so consumed with caring about earthly matters that you never devote yourself to what truly matters? God saves us to leave the world behind, and he also saves us to live godly lives. You see, it's not enough to kind of avoid certain things so you don't get in trouble. God also has a pattern, a model that he expects us to follow. If we spend our lives trying, trying not to break God's law, trying not to make God angry, trying not to mess up, we'll wear ourselves out pretty quickly. Imagine this. Imagine that... Uh, I don't know, you fall in love with, with your dream man or your dream woman. And you enter this life together, and as you walk through life, if, if, if you want to make each other happy, what do you do? You try to live in a way that makes the other person happy. Why? Because you love that person. But then over time, you, you begin to think differently. And rather than thinking about that person as kind of this object of affection or an object of love or an object of joy, suddenly that person becomes someone that's really hard to please. Now, I know this doesn't happen in real life, but in theory, imagine that this person gets, gets, gets hard to, harder to please over time. And, and so imagine that suddenly your focus changes from rather than kind of walking through life and loving each other and, and working hard to please each other, now, instead of positively working to love that person, now you become afraid of displeasing that person. And so suddenly what was, what, what was a source of joy, this, this relationship becomes a source of fear. Because no matter what I do, I can't make this person happy. No, no matter how far I go, no matter, uh, no matter how hard I work, no matter how nice the meal is, no matter how nice the house is, no matter uh, how much money I bring home, no matter, no matter, no matter, I, I can't make this person happy. And so that person, suddenly, rather than being like a source of joy and security, is now my biggest ball and chain. Now that person is my biggest fear. And, and, and coming home or seeing that person no longer brings a sense of joy. It brings a sense of kind of ominous foreboding. Like, ah, I'm, I'm afraid to see that person. Because if we live our lives in fear of transgressing that person's goodwill, eventually that will become a burden no matter who we are. And what Paul is saying here is that godly living isn't so much about trying 
not to do the wrong thing. It is about walking with Christ. You see, marriage is a lot easier when you walk through life together. We're just going to do this together. And along the way, we'll mess up what we're going through together. If I spend my life trying not to displease someone, a parent, a spouse, a friend, eventually that will become an impossible burden to bear and that relationship will begin to break down. And Paul says that God has saved us for something, to walk through life with God. And he says, verse 12, this looks like self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Galatians 5 teaches us that to live a self-controlled life is a fruit of the Spirit. If you have Christ, you'll grow in the fruit of the Spirit. A lack of self-control, whether it's out-of-control anger, whether it's out-of-control lust, whether it's an out-of-control appetite, physical appetite for food, is a demonstration of a lack of the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. Upright living is righteous living. In other words, it's living that conforms itself to the Word of God. To live a godly life is to live a God-word life. In other words, a, a, a life that increasingly reflects the character of God. Christ-like character. We kind of see this lived out in three ways. He says self-control, upright relationships, and godliness. In other words, there's this self-control. There's this personal character. Then there's this upright. In other words, I'm right in my relationship with other people. And godliness, I'm right in my relationship with God. So where does the motivation for this kind of life come from? Verse 13 tells us, that God gives us hope in Christ's return, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, gospel-centered, gospel-centered living and thinking is not just looking back at what Jesus has already done. It is also looking forward to Jesus coming back. Now, you got little kids in your house you know that you count down the days until the big holidays. And, and we'll just say, like, in, in your house, it's, it's a birthday. You got a birthday coming up. In fact, it might, it might be nine months away, but my birthday is coming up. Because it's a big deal. You look forward to that day. You look forward to the day. And why? Because, I don't know, you get presents, cake, friends, and people make a big deal out of you on that day. And there's nothing better than that, right? Now, imagine that your birthday was yesterday. Well, you got 364 or 365 days, depending on the year, to look forward to the next one. Well, the further removed you get from that past experience, which was real and was potentially joy-giving, the more important that future date becomes. If all you do is look back with positive positivity and and, and good memory and just warm feelings toward a past birthday, you lose the joy of what's coming in the future. But your past experience teaches you about the value of what's to come. You can't separate the two. We get so fixed on this earthly life that we forget about the glorious appearing of our coming Savior, Jesus. He is coming back. He will set it all right. He will fix it all. He will redeem all God's people and take them home with him to heaven. The gospel train won't miss a single passenger. The conductor knows how to steer that train. He's going to steer it right into the station. And if you've placed your faith in Christ, 
You will be on it. And I don't want to go in that train with anyone else but Jesus. The glorious Savior is coming back. The idea here is that we're on the edge of our seats. My birthday's tomorrow. My birthday's tomorrow. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. We're looking there. We're eager. We're looking for this appearing. If you believe in the power of the gospel, you'll be the kind of person that looks forward to the day when Jesus is coming back. Colossians chapter 1, Paul's writing to the church there, and he says that, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ and the love you have for all of the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. What he's saying is that the church lives out the love of God because they're looking forward to the return of Christ. Sometimes, perhaps, it might help fix our relationships with each other if we were more excited about Jesus coming back than we were more concerned about what that other person was doing that I don't like. And God also makes us passionate about good works. Verse 14 says that God, Jesus died to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ saved us for something. He saves us for good works. But before we get there, notice this. Verse 14, we are a people for his own possession. When Christ saves us, we belong to him. When we trust Christ, all that we are and all that we have belongs to Jesus. On the one hand, as Paul says, this means that he owns us because we're bought with a price. But on the other hand, it also means that we are Christ's and no one can take us from him. Do you fear that someone with your history with your mind, with your heart, with your regret, with your sin, cannot be a child of God. Friend, if you are trusting Christ, there's not a single thing that you or anyone else can do to separate you from the love of God in Christ. It's eternal, it's unbreakable, it's unshakable. Ephesians 1 says that God has made us accepted in the beloved, that is in the person of his son, Jesus. The king of the universe has adopted you, made you his daughter, made you his son. And you are prepared a future home. It's reserved. Your place is there. It's got your name on it. You have security now and you have the hope of glory ahead. But Jesus didn't save us for us. He saved us for good works. So we have to ask ourselves, if God saved us for good works, what is the testimony of our lives? If God saved us for good works, what good works am I doing? Works that aren't for me. Works that aren't for my happiness, but are for the good of others and the glory of Christ. You see, the gospel changes everything, even how we spend our time and effort. So, what in the world does this mean for us? Well, first it means that because the gospel is so powerful, we highlight the power of this message every Sunday. We believe that the gospel is the power of God and that it changes us changes everything about us, the way we relate to God, the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to our community. So we try to keep the gospel at the center of our life as a church. We try to keep the gospel at the center of our life as Christians and to model the power of the gospel in every message. Our prayer is that 10 years from now, this church is made up of 50% people who have come to know Christ through our witness. And if we don't carry the gospel with us everywhere we go, that ain't going to happen. 
we got to keep the gospel at the center of our lives. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for our growth in Christ. So we sing about the gospel. We pray about the gospel. We pray for the spread of the gospel. And every time you come here and every time you bring someone here, I want to commit to you this, that by God's grace, we will clearly proclaim this message. That God is a good God who created all things good and yet we broke it by our sin and yet his arm provided salvation in the person of his son, Jesus. That's good news. And every time we gather, we gather for that good news and around that good news. Secondly, we believe in regenerate church membership. There's nothing more Baptist than this, than regenerate church membership but many Baptist churches have lost their core commitment to this. You see, in other words, it's our responsibility to be sure that the people on our rolls actually know Jesus by faith. How heartbreaking would it be if there are people that we know that we have a relationship with who don't actually have a personal relationship with Christ? We want to be sure that people here actually know Jesus. We believe in true conversion, repentance, and faith through the power of the gospel and regenerate church membership. Look, we can't, we can't guarantee the state of anyone. You can't do it for me, and I can't do it for you. But we can do our best to practice membership of people who know Jesus, who make a credible profession of faith in Christ, and live that way. So we practice believer's baptism, and the Lord's Supper for believers, because of regenerate church membership. Thirdly, we believe that the gospel is the fuel for our growth in Christ, so we keep the main thing the main thing. We believe that Christians grow in Christ through the power of the gospel. If you think about the number of wars, fights, conflicts, divisions in church, how often are they about this? Not real often. There's this really obvious core which we really ought to contend for, and the Bible says, fight for that. And there's all this other stuff that God says, pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and we fight about all that. We forget about this. But this isn't new. I came across this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, some very stereotyped brethren judge it to be a crime for an evangelist to sing the gospel. And as to that American organ, he's, blaming, he's British, he's blaming us for the organ horrible instrument that it is, dreadful. One of these days, another set of conservative souls will hardly endure a service without such things. He's a prophet. <laughs> For the horror of one age is the idol of the next. What is it that keeps us from jumping from passion to passion, from dying on hills we shouldn't be dying on? It's a commitment to the life changing power of the gospel. We grow in Christ by looking back to the cross. We grow in Christ by looking forward to the return of Christ. It is this that is the main thing. The gospel is the power of God for all of life. Now, it may be that you're walking through life and you're pressing a button and you're getting nothing. It may be that you have never connected yourself to the life-giving blood of Jesus. So as we close this morning, I want to invite us all to consider this. What is our connection to 
the life-changing power of the good news that Jesus died to save sinners. Let's take a moment now, respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.